loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Megan Rorden Jarvis. Megan is a trauma-informed psychotherapist specializing in grief and loss, a writer, podcast host, and sought-after consultant with over 20 years of clinical experience, Megan helps individuals and groups explore the impact of emotion on personal and professional relationships. Using a wide variety of trauma modalities, Megan helps clients identify and integrate both unexpected loss and desired change. On her popular platform, Grief is My Side Hustle, Megan hosts the grief writing workshop, Grief Mates, and releases weekly podcasts and blog posts. Her essays have been widely published, and her memoir, tentatively titled Chasing Dark Skies, will be one of the first published by the newly minted Zibby Books in 2023. Megan lives in Maryland with her husband and three kids. Welcome, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so delighted to be here. I'm glad to have you. And of course, we've spent a little a little time together before this because I was on your podcast. So exactly. I, I'm ready for the follow up to, to hear Fantastic. more. You know, it's so different to be the interviewee than it is to be the interviewer. Um, so I'm really looking forward to knowing more of your story, how you came to do what you do and all things Megan. Oh, that's so nice. Well, thank you. Yes. I mean, it is, it is a, maybe a big, small world of the people who are out here sort of talking about grief and loss as our personal project and our day jobs. So I was delighted to have you on the podcast. And I'm so, it, I remember having you on and thinking, oh, it's a, it'll be a long time before I'm on yours. And here we and are. Here so. we are. Time yeah. has no meaning anymore. <laughs> That is not, not the truth. It really, yeah. Yeah. And I had just said to you, I am, I am on my, I'm on day eight uh, of COVID. So I, this is the day that I'm so glad we scheduled for today and not two days ago, because I had no energy two days ago. You and, would have had to probably cancel and I would have totally yes, understood. And I'm grateful that I didn't have to do that. So yeah. Well, well and that's the backdrop, you know, this time, the last few years, has really changed the landscape a bit in terms of public awareness of loss um, for a terrible, terrible reason. But having done this work for a very long time, uh, I do feel there's a little more, starting to be a little more eyes wide open about the impact of grief and, you know, just what it means to lose people. And, and, and any kind of grief. Yes. Would you agree with that? I would, you know, and I think a good test case for that is just this week alone. Well, I guess it was last week, but the, but the FT paper in um, from the UK, which is, you know, it's the financial times had an article um, written by a man named Simon. I'm blanking on his last name. I am so sorry, Simon. 
um, because I'm going to be interviewing him this weekend, but he wrote about disenfranchised grief and about how people are not telling folks that their loved ones died of COVID because of this stigma. And there's a similar article, which I put up on my Facebook page. I saw uh, that. Yes. Yeah. Which is from the Atlantic, which is similar. And, you know, there's a lot of language in the field of grief and loss that I feel like maybe is important to academics to get it perfectly right, whether you use disenfranchised grief or ambiguous loss or, but essentially what both articles are talking about is this additional pain that's happening for people who are losing, particularly now, right? Because most people who are dying statistically, not everyone, but most people who are dying are tending to be people who have chosen to not be vaccinated or cannot be vaccinated for some reason. And so mm -hmm. as people are dying of COVID now, their loved ones are left behind with this, you know, what part of the story do I tell? And it's not new, right? Because- No, when someone, smoking, when for died, instance, used to be yeah. that way, yeah overdose, suicide, mm -hmm. but even to some degree, having a heart attack, if, you know, one of the, someone asks, were they overweight? I mean, there's a distancing and judging that can happen around grief and loss, but, but the fact that two major papers on the same week covered sort of the same topic about the additional pain of grief and loss seemed to me to be pretty Pretty, in, pretty indicative. I don't know yeah. if you know uh, the work of Alua Arthur, but um, she's she's amazing, and she she's a. Um, I don't know her, but I'm writing uh, her name down. Uh, like anyway, her. she she put up an Instagram post that I saw a couple of days ago. Um, she's in end of life care. She's a death doula, etc. I mean, she's okay. she's wonderful, and she posted a a thing that um, she got sick. It wasn't COVID, but she she was right. visibly sick. Right? She was stuffy. She's She's like, the first thing my brain did was say, what, what did I do wrong? Yeah. And she talked about how um, that's happening to people from the outside in and inside, particularly in relationship to COVID. So I, I think she's uh, another person who's, who's trying to talk about that. And honestly, whether it doesn't change grief that much. It doesn't. Uh, I mean, There's the so losses, obviously all those different factors, and we'll talk about that, impact grief, but they don't sud somehow make grief not happen. <laughs> no, and I think the reason that, Simon Cooper is his name, by the way, I just remembered, sorry, Simon. Um, the, I think the reason that those two articles resonated particularly for me you know, I was in the field of trauma. I've been a trauma informed therapist for, you know, over 20 years training in all the modalities. And just for people who don't maybe know what that means, when we're, when I'm talking about trauma, what, what I mean is something terrible happened, an event or a series of events. So your entire childhood, there was poverty and you made meaning from that sense of fear around money that's like developmental trauma or a single event trauma where something, you know, you were in a hurricane and people died. When, right. when clients come into my office, I'm using all kinds of modalities to try to help move the sense of stuckness around that energy through their system. And the energy is stuck in the body. So we use the body as the tool. And so I've been doing that for 20 years. Grief and loss is one of the things that people would come in specifically with a death. 
the fact of all traumas includes some sort of loss. So I've been in the field doing that kind of work for 20 years, but in 2017, my dad was diagnosed with small cell cancer and he died about a year later. And he knew he was, you know, gravely ill. I knew he was gravely ill. We have a big family. His, the experience of being with him in his loss, in the, in his death, in his dying was not traumatic mm. because I knew what was happening and I participated in it. It was incredibly right. sad. It was utterly devastating, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't isolating I didn't feel like I had a lost sense of my identity. I just had a really terrible, sad thing happen. In 2019, I was on vacation with my mom and she had a short illness, went to sleep and didn't wake up. And my experience with her death was the polar opposite. I was mm-hmm. completely traumatized by, you know, I, I, the very first thought that I had when my husband called me and said, you know, I, I felt this sensation in my body. I was about an hour away from her house, picking up a child, a friend of the family. And I felt this sensation in my body, like my water breaking and I wasn't pregnant. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my God. And then I had this clear as a bell thought in my head was she died. And I called my husband and said, like, have you seen my mom? He was back at the house where she was. And he said, no. And I was like, I think she died. So I started driving towards her home an hour away. And he called me and said, you have to pull over. I can't tell you this until you pull over. And then he told me she died. And the very first thought that came into my mind was it's your fault. So the very first thought I had, which I knew to be, I knew what it was, you know, I've read all the books I've studied, all right. the things, but it turns out reading all the books and studying all the things doesn't prevent you from trauma. So I well, just had a lot yes. of like, not, you know, like doctors don't not get sick just because they know all the things, <laughs> you know, that reminds me of, uh, people, if I, if I choose to share that I'm a grief counselor, and I usually do choose to share that when people say, oh, what do you do? You know, right, um, right. very, very often the person will say, oh, does that make it easier when you have a loss? No. <laughs> I say, As you can imagine, I say, oh, not at all. The only difference is I know I have to do it. <laughs> That's the big <laughs> difference. No, I mean, the one thing that I will say is that I knew I had PTSD as it was developing and unfolding. I knew what sort of treatments I needed to seek. And I knew that I was at the level of next care that I wasn't going to be able to get enough treatment in offices. So that was helpful to have sort of that perspective. It didn't stop me from right, right, right. You just, you just kind of know what you need a little more and And I did. So I knew my PTSD showed up as that thought, you know, it's your fault, which, you know, I think it's important to say this to folks. I, I did, I ended up doing inpatient treatment because it was the thought and a lot of pictures of her dead body Mm -hmm. that were just relentless in my mind, just barraging me. And I, you know, I want people to know that that still happens I'm not suffering with PTSD now, but I still have to battle that thought that I could have done more and I should have done more because I knew she was ill. And so the it's your fault 
in my left hand, I know that that is irrational and there's nothing I could have done. And also sometimes I really believe that. And so it's and this real struggle. Sure. And from my point of view, uh, it's, it's easier to grapple with in a way, oh, it's my fault. I can correct oh. myself than it is to grapple with the fact that life is out of control. 100%. And I, so one of the, one of the techniques that I use is Dick Schwartz's parts work. And without going deep dive into that, what it essentially means is that we have a wide variety of little aspects to our personality that come in to try to help us stay safe and sane. And I really believe that it is easier for my mind to sometimes lock into that I had some sort of agency or culpability around my mother dying than the actual task of living in my life without her. That it's easier to hit myself over the head than to sit here and be like, yeah, and for the rest of my life, I don't get to call her and ask her advice or her support. Yes. Or and her. and anyone, anyone could die. That's right. love. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, for, right. For literally a year wow. when I when I uh, got together with my now wife, a um, couple of years after my first wife died, for literally a year, I would wake up and she'd be asleep. And I would look at her and see a death mask on her every night. And, you know, I, I knew why, but I still had to allow that, right? That was a perfectly sane reaction to the experience I, I'd had. And if I'd tried to get rid of it, I don't know if we would have been able to go forward. You know, I had to be with it in some way. And I didn't consider it traumatizing, but I did consider it true. It, it Because it is true. And I, I mean, I love that example. It sounds terrible and it sounds hard, but I think a lot of what grief work is my own and what I support with other people, you know, a phrase I use a lot is like, well, it was probably always going to be this way. Mm. Meaning just because you feel bad doesn't mean you're failing or doing something wrong. Right. Right. You know, absolute, you know, untenable, sorrow is a completely appropriate response to the kind of loss that some of us endure. And, you know, being able to hold space and say, like, for example, you may have seen this on my Instagram, but you know, when, when my family got COVID, I was sort of the last one standing for three or four days. I was like, Oh, I'm not going to get it. And so everybody else was sick. And I, I went to bed one night and I was like, and they were quite sick. I have three kids and they were quite sick. And my husband was quite sick. They all had fevers and all that stuff. And, and you were taking I, care of them. I'll bet you didn't quarantine entirely. No, no. And actually, <laughs> well, I took some advice from a doctor who I really trust. That was, you know, she had sort of taken the pulse of how long my son had had symptoms before we tested him. And she was like, I, I, I'm not sure it makes sense to try to quarantine from a nine-year-old who's anxious at this point. So we mm -hmm. actually didn't, we didn't try to quarantine from him by the time he had symptoms because we had sort of figured we'd all been really dramatically exposed by then. Sure. And so whether or not that was right or wrong, that was the choice that we made. And my point was that that night when they all sort of had fevers, I was like, oh, well, I'm going to sleep like a baby. I slept in another room. And every 30 minutes I was up standing over them to see if they were still breathing. Oh, I'll and, bet, because that right. echoes back, doesn't it? Yeah. And that's the, you know, that's the legacy. Like I have childhood loss. Like when I was eight, my 
cousin who was 16 drown while we were all at the beach, but we hadn't realized he had drowned until hours later. We didn't, you know, it was a whole parcel of us and he was 16 and independent. And, but it really was a family trauma and a town trauma and a whole community wide trauma that re really went unsupported for me as a kid. Nobody really talked about it. And so I had a lot of childhood fears, right? Like, I worried a lot about whether or not my older brother might die because the boy who died was the older brother of a good friend. And the interesting thing is, even though I'm 47 and I've done decades of therapy, I still have that kind of irrational thinking. Like if we go to bed, I might wake up and one of these people might be dead. And, you know, with COVID, it's not necessarily that irrational. So I put no. that on my Instagram. Well, I mean, phone. it's sad, but true. And I was going to ask you any minute now, what brought you to trauma work in the first place? Now you've just told me, <laughs> but um, sad, but true. That is a reality of living, isn't it? Yeah. How do, and how do we come to terms with that? Uh, when we, we have just a couple more minutes before a break, but that to me is, uh, you know, I lived with a dying person for almost a decade. Yeah. And she was never not dying. She just didn't. Right. And so in that time, my relationship to the fact of death just completely changed. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I didn't see a death mask on my That's new right. wife. It's I still, mean, we're still I'm, terrified of it because uh, it's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, yes, I, I don't feel afraid to die, but I have some fear around the people I love dying, yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, because, that. yeah. So, so let's, let's go to a break and, and come back and talk about, because to me, that's completely normal. That's an aspect of yes. love. Totally. And um, what gets me in trouble or other people in trouble is often um, trying to pretend that away or think there's something odd about it. Uh, to me, there's yes. when you, when something lets you in on the fact that that risk is there all the time. Uh, I'm, I don't live every minute like that anymore, of course, but uh, it changes your perspective. It does. Quite utterly. So let's go, to, let's go to our break. Listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Megan Rorden Jarvis, you can go to griefismysidehustle.com. Be back soon. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. 
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Megan Rorden Jarvis about her platform, Grief is My Side Hustle. And, um, you know, we share this kind of um, desire to get stories out there about grief. And I was saying on the break that that there are more stories out there than when my wife died, for instance. And I don't think it's just that I'm older and more people have had grief. And I think that there has been some change and sadly, um, especially in the last couple of years with so many people dying. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely think things have changed. And what I, what I started to say when I was eight and my cousin died, sort of the understanding then was that you don't talk to children about it, that they intellectually can't understand. Mm-hmm. And what I know as a trauma therapist and, you know, you asked that question, what brought you to, to trauma work? You know, probably my cousin dying is what brought me to therapy as a, as a field. I was so, you know, it was a breakup that brought me to therapy. I was in there to cry about, you know, how sad I was and then discovered what therapy had to offer, which was sort of like an intentional choosing around how you lived your life. And so I learned a lot in that, but the but the element of, of understanding that people can go through unbelievably terrible things and not be traumatized when they have the right kind of enough support. Yeah, absolutely. That, that remains sort of like the, the passion for me. And before we went to the break, I was talking about my family having COVID and sort of mentioning that I had walked the halls. Actually, I think I did it in Instagram live. I just said like, it was a casual, it was a, you know, I was dropping it in like, oh, and every 30 minutes I got up to make sure that everyone hadn't died. And, and because people who follow me, follow me because I talk a lot about grief and loss. I got got hundreds of messages from people that were like, oh my God, I I didn't know other people did that. And I just got story after story. And then all of a sudden I was like, okay, this, I have to tell this story this week. Like people 
heard this, it resonated and they need to know one, that that's normal Two, that it's hard and we see it and we hear it. And, you know, there are ways to sort of help yourself in that difficult. But when I think about where we are right now, which is, I haven't checked the COVID number, but partly because I'm trying to like manage my own anxiety, but I haven't checked the death toll, but it's, you know, I know it's up over 800,000 just in this country. And the estimate is for every one person who dies, there are nine people that grieve them. You know, that is an astronomical number. Astronomical. And I feel that may be, you know, an underestimation. Me too. Absolutely. Uh, You know, because the fact is each person's life impacts a lot of lives, typically, even isolative people who don't think that they're impacting anyone. They do. Right. So I, if anything, that's got to be um, a lower number than it actually is. And, yeah, and that means a, we're, we're, in an, we're in grief soup in this country right now. There's a statistic out there, too, that, you know, comes from somebody doing a scientific study. And so I, I'm not trying to disparage it, but it's like, oh, you know, 60% of people do fine with grief and loss. They don't need any additional support. And I just like, I've never met anyone who would actually say that. I have never met anyone that was like, oh, I didn't need to, I, you know, I didn't wish for something to be slightly different so that I felt supported in grief. So I, you know, hmm. part of what I feel like is not that everybody has to go to therapy, but, but as much as we can talk about it, it's so that people understand what is normative and what meaning like things that we just know to be true of grief, not meaning it has to be true of you, but it is not uncommon for people to have what you started to say right before the break, which was like, you don't fear your own death, but you fear other people that you love dying. My, in my experience, people usually have one or the other. They're either worried about themselves dying and what that's gonna mean for their young children and their spouse or all the, their employees, or they worry about somebody else dying. And, and, so it's, when I'm and it's interesting, too, because uh, this person I loved so much. I mean, I met her when I was 16. Oh she died gosh. when I was 42. Um, long and complicated and wonderful story, but I won't go into that. But um, it was actually I don't talk about this all the time, but I've talked about it on the on the show. Her actual death was um quite euphoric yeah I, yeah quite euphoric you said that on my podcast and and so you know there, so it isn't and and honestly i went through all the grief things people go through but i felt honored to do it i wasn't in resistance because we'd been talking about it for a long time i was like oh you're gonna have to do it right but nonetheless I sure don't relish it. Right. Right. And, and when we, and what I know about your story, because I've heard you talk about it and it is so important to say that it was euphoric because there are other people out there who that is their experience and they're feeling shame about that because they don't know that that is also a, a thing that happens. Way. Right. It's normal. You know, in a prepared desk like hers, right? right. By the time we got there, we had, we had <sighs> grappled in every possible way. And that, removed some things, some obstacles to that. But it was literally years before I talked about that experience uh, widely. I can understand that. And, and, 
And again, I think there's the like, you know, I don't know that everybody is able to go through their grief process and talk about their grief process at the same time. I mean, I, you know, I'm two and a half years into my mom and nearly five into my dad's death, but also, you know, those aren't the only deaths that I've experienced. I had friends who died and my cousin, but, but I do feel beholden to my knowledge and my sort of the growth of my experience to point out places where, you know, the fact that we have all of these new grievers in the world that, that we could be and should be supporting them better. And one of those for me as a trauma therapist and what people end up asking me to talk about all the time is just the, what we know about the body and how the body responds to traumatic events. So for example, you know, we have this limbic system, which is our little reptilian brain that's at the back of our skull. And it includes the amygdala, which is the little, the body smoke alarm. And when the amygdala goes off and it will go off always when there is a death, because we are wired to try to stay alive. So it will go off. It will respond to the fact that there has been some dying around us with an inflation, mm-hmm. how quickly it then goes back down varies from person to person, how intensely it inflates varies from person to person. If you're someone who had a lot of stress and, you know, we study these ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences, but there are some people, you know, it's almost like a car alarm that's wired wrong. It goes off when it's windy instead of when someone's trying to break in. Some people's amygdalas work that way, For sure. but the, it will, it will inflate. And when it inflates, it minimizes the electrical current that comes from our spinal cord. So all the signals from the body that are coming up to the brain and it's a super highway. So all the, all the signals from the brain going back into the body are, are blocked by this amygdala. And so what happens to the body, and this is generalizable across cultures in a way that almost nothing else is in grief because it's a trauma response and humans are humans. We will have our memory impacted. Our sleep is impacted. Our digestive tract is impacted. Our ability to do multiple steps, you know, like step one, step two, step three is impacted. Our word recall is impacted. Our sexual drive is impacted. And we know because there are these little parts of the brain that are around the amygdala that aren't getting their normal levels of oxygen. And so people come into my office and they're like, Megan, I think I'm going crazy. I can't remember the name of the dog. And what I say to them is, wait a minute, let me show you this map of your brain. Let me show you what's happening. And let me show you that your word recall center is just misfiring right now. We need to soothe the system, the brain system, so that we can convince that amygdala response, that smoke alarm to stop ringing. And I, my experience was I actually felt, and it still happens to me sometimes like a gong inside. I could feel the sort of response inside when my tension was high. And I mean, I sat with my mom after my dad died and we made a timeline of events based on like receipts and documents and medical charts. And we were like, okay, this is, it happened like this. This is how he died over the course of the year. We did it over the course of a day and neither of us could remember any of what we had written down the next day. It was like, (laughs) and there is to me, the fact that I know that 
And I don't even need to, I don't need to say hippocampus, hypothalamus, or amygdala. I can just say bits of your brain. But there are a lot of people out there that are talking about brain fog. There are not enough people out there. I, I feel like talking about the science behind it and just saying, right. This, this is what can happen. Not to, not to mention, Megan, I'm sure you have run across the information that a person's heart, actual yes. physical heart changes shape in grief. Yes. I and mean, again, th- to me, that, that kind of cues people in. Oh, wow. Big deal. Right. And some people will go to, oh, no, what if I have a heart attack? But where I go is this even changes the shape of your body. Right. right. <laughs> it's so validating. So one of the things I've talked about a lot is that I gained a lot of weight in between my dad dying and my mom dying. Well, and now, I mean, I've stopped gain- I've stopped gaining weight. But, you know, the body is a filter. And so people have a lot of, you know, and I don't sleep very well. I still don't sleep very well. I work really hard at the things that soothe Mm, so that I might take the the anxious energy and bring it down. But I'll tell you what, when the sun goes down, everybody's anxiety pops up. That's just evolution. That's the way, again, the amygdala responds to darkness with a little bit of energy because it's like we're less safe. When the sun goes down, I can end up rocking back and forth in the corner about whether or not the world is going to be a good place for my children. So as I'm still processing my grief, which I do every day and I work on it every day, I also have this like pandemic thing going on. Right. Which how do we, how do we tease all that apart? Huh? It, but it makes the soothing process, which again, I feel like we could just teach people about soothing. You know, a lot of the information that people get about grief and loss is on the job training. Something terrible happens and they're like inventing it on their own or they Absolutely. get it from movies and TV who generally do a terrible job of showing us what it's really like. And then with, a, with they, a few exceptions, right? With a few exceptions. <laughs> oh my God. I love this TV show afterlife. Uh-uh. I mean, I, I just was watching it yesterday. Uh, mm. it, it, it captures some things for sure. It really does. It's but, an award but, for me, but, <laughs> but right. But, the, but the, but the concept of like, we don't have a core grief education. Mm. is so it, we are missing the mark over and over and over. And I think there are so many simple things like, for example, state governments, the federal government, I don't care. They could just be throwing money at therapists right now to get trained in grief and loss. They could just make it be something that is a requirement, the way that we are required to take an ethics class. Just Isn't it crazy that it's crazy, it's crazy it's that this crazy. thing that happens to every human, we don't have to be trained in. And I've had lots of people come to me for therapy. Yeah. Having had to leave their therapist of years and years and years yeah. because the person couldn't work with grief. That's crazy know, to me. There are so many therapists that say they work with grief. I mean, you wouldn't say you worked with eating disorders if you had no training and no personal experience with an eating disorder. But there are so many therapists that are like, well, yeah, that doesn't sound hard. Like, actually, (laughs) what are you talking about? It is hard, but it wouldn't be difficult for us right now, given the influx. You know, I'm sure you have a waiting list. I've had a waiting list for, you know, a couple of years now of people that want to see a grief specialist. And I don't even want to hear their details or their story because I'm going to want to help them. And I 
just, you know, I have to have some boundaries with my time, but I feel like we need to increase, you know, this is how the Salvation Army started. Like the Salvation Army was like, oh my God, there's so many social services that are needed. We need to put people out there. And they created this little social service army. There's no reason why other people couldn't be trained in grief and loss. And there's no reason why college kids couldn't have a, a weekend long course where we are teaching them. This is what happens in the body. This is what people generally say is helpful. This is what people say, you know, because each one of us has to grow our own capacity to grieve and to show up for people that we love in grief and just give some coaching. It, there's no one right answer. You've got to figure it out for yourself. That's right. And it's, I want to talk more about kids. Um, you know, at one point, my, uh, my grandson's, uh, my son-in-law's mother was very, very ill mm. and the oldest of their three kids, uh, started having a ton of anxiety mm -hmm. and they were doing all they could to, you know, try to figure it out. And so I was visiting and they said, would you talk with him yeah. uh, about what's going on? Well, you know, he was actually literally scared yeah. and I started telling him about my life. And then I said, would you like to meet my first wife before my current partner who he's close to and yeah. and he was fascinated so yeah. i pulled up a picture we talked about her i said i still rely on her i still talk to her i still you know um i still mm. feel helped by her and um i i'm sure he still has an anxiety but that was such a meaningful conversation for us just to you know, go right there. And his parents are not adverse, but it was something about me, a slightly, not his parents, you know, <laughs> slightly yeah, the side. You could have the conversation. You know, one of the things that I, because I have very, one, one of the things that just is true about me is that I have a really extraordinary memory. And I remember things that nobody would ever remember, not because they're traumatic memories, but that's just how my memory works. And I have very, very acute memories of when my cousin died. And what I know is that thing that grievers talk about, which is that thing where you're like, either there's something wrong outside of me or there's something wrong with me. And what happens yeah. with children is if you do not show up and encourage the questions, they don't even know what to ask. They, they don't, don't know what to ask. It's so true. They're anxious. You know, if you don't encourage those questions, the way they feel becomes who they are. And so they become scaredy cats because they feel afraid. Instead Can we come of, back to that in a minute? Because I don't, yeah. I mean, the, the impact on kids, uh, right now is just so mighty and I, and I won't, I don't want to speed through it. So yeah. uh, it's time for our second break. We'll, we'll do that. Uh, listeners, you can go to weatheringgrief.com or the good grief host page and to find Megan Rorden Jarvis, go to grief is my side hustle.com. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. 
Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Megan Rorden Jarvis about her blog, podcast platform, Grief is My Side Hustle. And Megan, we were talking about kids before the break. Yeah. And I'm one thing I'm aware of that I've heard so many people describe is, um, you know, let's take your circumstance. So your your mom died. That was your children's grandmother. Yes. And at the very time when they were processing a loss, um, you were too, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and so, you know, some, some parents, of course, shut their kids down and all that. Um, but even if you're not one of those parents, it's actually really, really hard to make yourself available enough because you're in it too. And then I was thinking about your circumstance that the death of your mom really compromised your own well-being to the point where it needed to be someone else, I'm assuming. (laughs) So that's all very complex, isn't it? Yeah. So it's a great question. And so one thing that's, if people are interested in this, I did a podcast with my children to ask them about their experiences after my dad died and after my mom died. Um, And it was totally fascinating to me because things that were really poignant and important to me, like right after my mother died, my daughter said to me, she could see that there was something going on. And she said, do you need help? 
do you want me to help you box breathe? And I mean, to me, it was like the, the most extraordinary moment of grace. And she has no memory of it. She doesn't mm-hmm. even remember doing it. So, so that I, I did that podcast because I thought it would be helpful to parents, but, but your question is a question that I ask people often, which is like, was it good? Meaning the external needs of your children, did that help you get through grief? Because many, many people say, oh my God, it was so, you know, I had to get up. I had to, I had to function for my children. I had a different experience. So PTSD, you know, it sets in, right? So from the traditional sense, when we, when it was first a diagnostic about veterans, what we saw with veterans was they saw combat, they came home and about a year afterwards, they would start to have all of these panic attacks and terror, which was essentially like their body sort of taking those terrible, terrible feelings out of the deep freeze at a time when they were actually safe enough to experience them. Mm, If they had been terrified on the battlefield, they would have died. So my PTSD was similar in the sense that like, you know, I've written a memoir about this that'll come out next year, but my experience with my mom's death, I was there. I was active. I was driving the car. I was helping. I was doing, I was participating much of it was emotional, but it didn't feel traumatizing in those moments. The images that I have of her death, of her dead body, are because I sat for a couple of hours saying the rosary over her body because I knew that's what she would want. Mm-hmm. So the PTSD set in several months later when the when the images were intrusive and the thoughts were intrusive and nothing that I could do would regulate my system. And I just got sicker and sicker and sicker. And by the time we got to there, so like in the early days, like telling my children that my mother died, you know, I was very much like a mother who was a trauma therapist. Like I was there I was <laughs> about their yeah. feelings. I was sharing, we were crying. I mean, I was, I was participating and doing for them as you know, I left her house. I came back to my house. The kids, it was at the end of the summer. The kids went to school. I was kind of alone in my house. I couldn't imagine going back to work. And my experience of terror and sorrow and grief were really profound. But the question that you asked um, on the break was like, why do you think it was worse with your mom than with the other losses that you have? And I do, I think partly the compound loss of my mom and dad so close together was part of it. But honestly, when, when I went through the experience of my cousin dying, when, when I was younger, it upended my mother in a way that I could see, but we never spoke about that made Mm. me very codependent in that way where like, I was always trying to make things easier for her and Uh. just soften her life. And as I entered therapy in my twenties, it was pointed out to me. I didn't know what codependency was. It was pointed out to me. My therapist and I really set some boundaries, which were not easy for me or my mom, but I had a story in my head that I was living very separate from her, that, that my sisters were closer to her, that they needed her more. And that my husband and I had set up our own camp and it was a different country and we lived different. And when my mother died, I came to understand that that was a false narrative, Hmm. that I was deeply entwined in what she cared about, what she needed, how she participated in the world. And I really had a profound loss of identity when she was no longer the bellwether 
So I describe it as like, she was the tent pole, but I didn't know it. And oh, that's so familiar house, to me. Yeah. Yeah. When, I didn't, I didn't develop PTSD when my mom died. Uh, a f- hmm, let's see. Three years after my dad died. So pretty mm-hmm. similar, but mm-hmm. I was aware that I felt as if the wall was removed that I had pushed up against my whole life. And also that I couldn't really grieve my dad until my mom died. It was all kind of in a package. (laughs) I don't know if that's You can't know that it happens. And so like, if you would, if we had had coffee when my dad died and you said, what do you think will happen when your mom dies? I would say like, oh, my sisters will be a wreck. Like it was a total shock to me that I was so unlike myself. And, and I really did, like, I was so filled with sorrow and the loss of her, just the like profound, like, oh my God, I'm gonna have to live the rest of my life without her, Mm. that I didn't feel like particularly people who knew me well, I couldn't bear to sit in front of them. My husband was the exception, but other people who like knew, knew me to be a cheerful person, knew me to be confident, knew me to laugh a lot, knew me to be helpful. I didn't feel any of those things anymore. And I didn't know if that, that experience of myself in the world was ever going to come back. And so what I said all the time was like, I just don't even know how to be. Like, I don't know what to do with my, with myself. And that really was profoundly shocking to me. And when I came out, it really was. And I, you know, I checked myself into inpatient treatment. I was there for three weeks, almost a month. And I did a ton of work. It was, it was profoundly helpful, but I came home and was sitting on my couch and I was looking at my mantle and my mantle has, my mom lived at the ocean and my mantle has a picture of like an ocean view that's near her home. And it had some shells on it and these candlesticks and these hurricane lamps. And I was like, do I like any of those things or are they there because she likes them? Mm. Are those my things or were those her things? And I think I thought I did a lot of that separating and individuating in my twenties. And I have been really stunned to discover, and it's had some aftershocks even in my marriage and sort of like, do I do this because I think it's what I want to do? Or is it a legacy maneuver about the femininity that my mother valued because she was very old school, stay at home wife. And so it really, really rattled me. And that, you know, that's my hypothesis as to why. It's interesting because, um, you know, I, I always end up feeling grateful almost every week for the time that my wife and I had to grapple. And, and Mm -hmm. of course, that's a looking back on perspective. Yes, of course. <laughs> you know, of course it is, right. but it is true. And one of the things that happened is I sort of prepared the ground for my grief. I'm like, I don't know what it's going to be like. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what, I, what I'm going to feel, but I'm going to give myself whatever I need. Right. <laughs> you know, I just, right. I got a chance to make that bargain. And if you don't know it was obvious that I was going to have tremendous grief. Yeah. Right. So if you don't know that you're going to, you also don't have the authority of the plan. 
That's right. Um, so I feel that might have been, you knew it was coming with your dad. You planned for it. You right. did what you could do to um, reduce regret. Uh, you know, you did a lot of things, um, but you didn't get that chance at all with your mom. No. And, you know, just to sort of circle back to the kid thing, I, I could not do the dual process of continuing to show up for their pain and my own pain. I really, part of, part of the choice of like stepping away from my family, which by the way, was terrifying. It's the thing I am the single proudest of in my life was because I feel like I saved my life in that moment. And I think I saved my family and I saved my marriage by saying like, I can't, I, I can't do this by myself. And I can't do it in the presence of people who need me because my my automatic response will be to be the helper and I will never be able to integrate being the daughter who has lost everything that I've lost if I don't move away from that. And when I went to treatment, they were very specific, like, you know, we don't want you calling home a lot. We don't want you, you know, you really need to focus on being a woman who has lost her mother, not worried about whether or not your kids are okay, because my kids were okay. My -hmm. husband is a totally high functioning human being. And he was able to, you know, parent them. We got a babysitter. If you ask the kids, like they had more, more sugar and played a lot more board games while mom was away. They were not traumatized by by me being on. And I'm pretty sure because you had them on your podcast, it's an open subject. It is. That shows them something about being a grown up. Because to me, you know, now that my kids are all grown and, and I have grandkids, I think a lot more about the ways in which I showed them how to be a grown up and less about all the work. Yeah. Um, you know, so you show I them agree. how to be a gr- grown up. If you're in trouble, get some help and step away from whoever you love to get it because otherwise you can't be there for them. Are you Similar- with me? On- Similarly with my clients, I also came back and said, yeah, I checked myself into a facility because that I really needed that level of help. And I just sort of feel like I have street cred. Right. You like, know what? That's that's what happened when I went back to work, too. People yeah. knew I was, I'd been there and I had done that because <laughs> I had to take quite a bit of time off. Of course. Guess what? We have run out of time. Oh, Maybe I can't believe it. Come back boy. when your book comes out or something. We'll Thank see. Thank you. I would love to do that. You're so generous. I Thanks for being will. here to, to today you. with me. Go to griefismysidehustle.com to find Megan Rorden Jarvis. Next week, I'll have Jessica Vitalis. Writing her young adult novel, The Wolf's Curse, pushed her to dive deep into grief and how it affects our lives. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.